0: Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother Robin has reminded us, last week we were considering the last few verses of John chapter 3, where we saw the Lord Jesus Christ ministering in the country regions of Judea and his disciples baptising those who came unto them. Chapter 4 brings us to the point where the Lord found it necessary to leave the regions of Judea because of uh, knowledge that was now in the, in the uh, hands of the Pharisees. Verse 1 says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptised more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptised not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And so we see the way in which the Lord, when he became aware that the Pharisees knew of the popularity that he was gaining in Judea, he saw it expedient to leave Judea and travel into the regions of Galilee. The Lord was well aware that the Pharisees were watching his every move. He knew that the popularity and the success that his preaching work was gaining in Judea would incite the hatred and the enmity of the Pharisees and so at this time he avoided any confrontation with them. Later when he knew that the time was right he was prepared to set his faith steadfastly toward Jerusalem in full knowledge of what would happen to him there. But it was too early in his ministry yet for any confrontation that might lead to, uh, to to any disaster and disruption of his work at that time, and so the Lord quietly leaves Judea and travels northward to Galilee. Now, in verse four, we read he must needs go through Samaria. The, the the word Samaria there doesn't refer to the city of Samaria. It refers to the country of Samaria, which was quite an extensive region. Jews generally avoided going through Samaria and would travel down by crossing over the Jordan into the regions of Perea and travel north and then back over the Jordan up into Galilee. But the Lord Jesus Christ didn't do that. We're told that he must need go through Samaria. Obviously it was the shortest way to go to Galilee and there was no reason or need for the Lord to have to to go along the way. He did not share the view of the Jews towards the Samaritans. The Lord was quite prepared to go through Samaria and he was quite prepared to become engaged in the work of the truth in the region of Samaria. And so the location of the Lord in Judea, his desire to go into Galilee, the, the, the shortness of the journey by going through Samaria all combined to make it that he needs go through Samaria. We find that the Samaritans, there was great enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews would not normally choose to go through Samaria but would avoid it. We find that the Samaritans had their origin in the days of the Assyrian assault on the northern tribes of Israel. And in the 2nd of Kings chapter 17 we read of the origin of the Samaritan people. 2nd of Kings 17 and verses 24 to 41 record the, uh, the, um, the origin of the Samaritans. We won't read all those verses of course but reading verse 24 we read And the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kuhar Kuthar and from Avar and from Hamath and from Savarvain Z- and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel and they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. And there is the origin of the Samaritan people in the day that, that were in that land in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were Gentile, of Gentile origin that the king of Assyria had brought from Gentile countries five of them mentioned there, he had brought them from Gentile countries and placed them in the land of Israel instead of the children of Israel whom he had carried away captive. However the people adopted the uh, form of the worship of Yahweh and we find at a later time they claim themselves to be true Israelites as indeed we we learn from this fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. We are introduced to the Samaritans again in the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 4, here is the time when the Jewish captives had returned from the city of Babylon to rebuild the temple of Yahweh. And we find that from from Ezra chapter 4 that the Samaritans wanted to become involved in that work. We read in verse 1, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin Heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto Yahweh Elohim of Israel. Then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers, and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Asher Haddon, uh, king, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. You see, here's the Samaritan people, but the king of Assyria transported into that land and established in the land of Israel in place of the children of Israel. But now they counted themselves as worshippers of the God of Israel. And they wanted to be involved with the, with, um, the, the returning captives in the work of building the Temple of Yahweh. But of course we know the story, how the rulers of the Jews at that time refused to allow them to assist in that work and how they became adversaries to the Jewish people and did all they could to hinder that work and to bring it to its stop. Nehemiah likewise uh, had the the same experience in the uh, book of Nehemiah and again at chapter 4 and at verse 2 we read of the way in which the Samaritans um, likewise hindered the work of building the wall of Jerusalem. We read in verse 1 of of when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth, and he took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish that are are to be burned? And again we see how the Samaritans here oppose the Jews and the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And that enmity had continued on down through the centuries, down to the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that enmity was still very much in evidence in that particular time. And so we find here in John chapter chapter 4, from verse 12, we find the woman of Samaria saying, "'Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. Notice how the woman traces her origin back to her father Jacob. Indeed, they may have been able to trace it back to their father Jacob in some respects if there was intermarriage with Jewish people. But outside of that, we know that they had Gentile origin. And so, but we see how they claimed themselves to be true Israelites and true descendants of Jacob, The Samaritans professed to keep the law of Moses. I believe they rejected many of the other writings of the Jews. But they did profess to keep the law of Moses. And they had built a temple in Mount Gerizim, close to Shechem. They had built a rival temple to the temple at Jerusalem. Uh, That temple was not in existence in the days of the Lord. It was in ruins at that time, having been destroyed at some earlier occasion. And so there was this enmity between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans believed they were true worshippers of Yahweh. The Jews would have no dealings with them and there was enmity between the two and that's why Jewish people wouldn't normally travel through Samaria if they could avoid it. But the Lord Jesus Christ did not share the attitude of the Jews in that way, and so he travelled through Samaria. And we read in verse 5 that he cometh to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Sychar was a small town, let's to believe, a small town close to Shechem at the foot of Mount Gerizim. And from this verse 5 of John chapter 4 we, read, we learn that it was a most significant spot historically. We can go back to the pages of scripture and we can see how that very site to which the Lord Jesus is now approaching was a site rich in its history. We go back first of all to the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis And there in that 12th chapter of the book of Genesis we read in verse, uh, verses 6 and 7 and because we know the setting here that Abraham has just received the promises outlined in Genesis chapter 12 verses 3 and 4 he's travelled from Haran he's come down into the land of Canaan and in verse 6 we read how he passed through the land unto the place of Sikkim or Shechem Unto the plain of Moreh, and the Canaanite was then in the land. And Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he builded an altar unto Yahweh, who appeared unto him. And so Abram's come to the vicinity of Shechem, between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And there he receives the first promise of a seed. This is the first time Abraham has been promised a seed. And not only is he promised a seed but he's promised that 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 seed will inherit that land. He says under thy seed will I give this land. We find that there in that very place Abraham built an altar. And we learn that there was an oak tree there. Because that word plain there under the plain of Moray that word plane means an oak. There was an oak tree there. And the word mores means an archer or a teacher. See, so just as the archer aims his arrow at the target and shoots it towards the target, so a teacher points out the way to the desired goal or the target. And so the word implies either an archer or a teacher. And there was the oak tree. The oak tree, the symbol of strength. There was the strength of the teacher. We learn that Abraham bought a field there because in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts Stephen tells us that Abraham bought a field there in the 7th chapter of the book of Acts and at verse 16 verse 15, to get the context, speaks of Jacob going down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over unto Sikkim or Shechem and laid in the sepulchre that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Shechem. We know that, that, that Jacob's bones were 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 buried at Hebron. But the other fathers of Israel were apparently carried over and laid in the sepulchre that Abraham bought at Shechem and he bought it of the sons of Emor the father of Sikkim. Now when we go on through the book of Genesis and we come to Genesis chapter 33 we find in Genesis 33 that Jacob also bought a field at Shechem Genesis 33 and verses 18 and 19 And Jacob came unto Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And there he erected an altar and called it El-Elihi-Israel. And so we find that Jacob also bought a field at Shechem. And we believe it was the same field that Abraham had previously uh, uh, owned. It was the very same field and he purchased it back again. And we find that Jacob also built an altar there. And we find that there he erected an altar and called it el Eli Israel and it means the strength of the mighty ones of Israel. You see just as Abraham built an altar there and, uh, 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 and, and it was associated with the strength of the teacher here Jacob built another altar and he calls it the strength of the mighty ones of Israel. And we find that in the vicinity of that field and that altar there was an oak tree because you see in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 4 we read that after the um, business of, of, of Dinah and Shechem and, 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 and Simeon and Levi destroying that city God um, Jacob has to leave Shechem and God instructs him to go up to Bethel. And we read in verse 4 that before they rose up and went to Bethel um, he, he, he in verse 4 we read, And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were in their hands, and all the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. So there we read again of an oak in the vicinity of this field that Jacob, Jacob had bought. And under that oak were hidden, as it were, the sins and the idolatries of Jacob's household. And they were hidden there beneath that oak, beneath that strong one typified by the oak. And there by that oak they unloaded their sins and their idolatry and it was hidden beneath that oak. Now Shechem figures in later history of Israel also. We learn from Deuteronomy 27 and 13 and Joshua chapter 8 verse 30 that when Israel entered that land, Joshua was to take the tribes of Israel to Shechem and there between the mounts of Evil and Gerizim he was to erect an altar and he was to uh, inscribe the, the law upon that stone and the blessings and the cursings of that law were repeated at Shechem. And there at Shechem Israel were reminded of the terms of their covenant and they were reminded of the blessings of obeying the covenant and the cursings of breaking that covenant. At a later time, we find that when they entered the land and took it up, Shechem was appointed as a city of refuge, and also a city of the Kohathites, the family of Levi. Joshua 21 and verse 21 tells us that. What we read, For they gave them, that is to the Kohathites, the children of Levi, They gave them Shechem with all her suburbs in Mount Ephraim to be a a city of refuge for the slayer and Giza with her suburbs. And so we find that that, that it was a Levitical city. It was a city of refuge. And, And later we find that Joshua just before his death he gathered the people together at Shechem. He gathered all the tribes and all the elders of Israel together that he might address them at Shechem, that he might address them before his death. Verse 1 says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and they presented themselves before Elohim. And in verse 26 we note of this chapter And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of Yahweh. Verse 32 points out to us that that field which Jacob had bought and Abraham had previously owned was the place where they buried the bones of Joseph the bones of Joseph which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt buried they in Shechem in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor the father of Shechem for a hundred pieces of silver and it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. You see and so where uh, Stephen tells us in Acts that many of the fathers were buried in that field that Abraham bought I believe it was that very field that Abraham bought that was later given as an inheritance to Joseph and that's where Joseph's bones were laid. You know later in the history of Israel after the death of Solomon we find that Rehoboam gathered the people together at Shechem that he might be established as king over the twelve tribes of Israel. But it was there at Shechem that the kingdom was divided and ten tribes were rent away from Rehoboam and Rehoboam uh, had to return to Jerusalem to be king over two tribes only. And it was interesting that it was at Shechem that the kingdom was divided. And the very name Shechem is interesting. Interesting. It means, by implication, the burden bearer. Reply, it, it, the, the word itself applies to the shoulders, between the shoulders. And that's the place where burdens are born. And so by implication it means the burden bearer. You know, as we come to draw all these things together, you know, the very teaching of that place was so rich. You know, everything about that place pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, is He was at Shechem, that the promise of the seed was given to Abraham, and Christ is the seed of Abraham. He is that seed that's going to inherit that land forever. And the first promise of an inheritance to that seed was given at Shechem. Abraham built his first altar at Shechem and offered sacrifices upon that altar. And the Lord Jesus Christ is both the altar and the sacrifice. You see there was an oath, the oath of the teacher was at Shechem and the Lord Jesus Christ is the great teacher. Jacob built an altar there and he called it the strength of the mighty ones of Israel. And who is the strength of the mighty ones of Israel? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there at Shechem, the family of Jacob, unburdened their sins and their idolatry and it was hidden beneath the oak, the symbol of strength. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ is the strong one who's going to cleanse Israel of their idolatry, and of their sins. The name Shechem means the burden bearer. And who is our burden bearer? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You know, that, that parcel of ground became the inheritance of Joseph. And who was Joseph a type of? But the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to inherit the whole of that land. You know, it, it was at Shechem that the kingdom was divided into two. And who is going to unite the two kingdoms of Israel into one again? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Shechem was a city of refuge. And who is our city of refuge? The Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it was at Shechem that that, that Joshua took the tribe and reminded them of the principles of the covenant. And he expounded the blessings and the cursings that would come from obedience or disobedience to that covenant. And who is our covenant victim? The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who will bring blessing or cursing to us according as we have responded to his goodness. You know, there at Shechem, in Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans had built a temple. But who is the living temple? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the temple of Yahweh and so you see all of these things pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ and you know I wonder what thoughts were on the mind of the Lord as he drew near to that region on that journey as he was on his way up to Galilee the Lord Jesus Christ with his tremendous knowledge of the word far greater than anything we can give you tonight with his mind so sensitive to spiritual things What would his thoughts be as he drew near to that most significant region, the very region where the first promise of the land as his inheritance was given and where all these other significant events and things took place? And so you see, he cometh, he says verse 5 of John chapter 4, he cometh into a city of Samaria which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph right into the very vicinity of where Joseph's bones were laid. And we read in verse 6, Now Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well was there. So not only did Jacob build an altar and call it the strength of the mighty ones of Israel, Jacob dug a well also at that place. And Jacob's well was there in the Lord Jesus Christ. Was drawing into close proximity to that well. Now that well's very interesting, really, because according to authorities that I've read, I've never been to the land, but I have read of it. And an authorities say it's a puzzle, really, to know why a well such as that would be dug there. The well's there; it's there to be seen today. They say it's a well when it was originally dug would probably be between 100 and 150 feet deep. It's largely silted up and filled with rubbish today but it's still I believe about 70 feet deep. And they believe that it was possibly 100 to 150 feet deep. As far as I can have been led to understand it was lined with stones. I can assure you that to dig a well like that would be an enormous amount of work. Enormous amount of work to dig a well like that by hand. But why did Jacob go to all that amount of work? Because we're told that it's in a country that is abounding with springs and streams. There's an abundance of water, so they say, in the surrounding countryside. And we can imagine that there would be. With those two mounts of Ebel and Gerizim, and with the runoff and the seepage that would come from those hills, it's understandable that it would be a land abounding in springs and streams. Why then go to the immense amount of work to dig that well? I believe it's not hard to imagine why Jacob dug that well. You see, if Jacob's family had been dependent upon the water supplies of the surrounding countryside, they would have been dependent upon the Canaanites. And they would have had to, come, they would have to go and mix with the Canaanites as they went to get their supplies of water each day. They would meet the Canaanites, probably talk with the Canaanites, become influenced and involved with the Canaanites. But Jacob saw that that would be fatal. And so Jacob dug a well that he might maintain his independence from the Canaanites, that he might maintain the separateness of his household. Unfortunately, Jacob broke down upon that principle in regard to his daughter Dinah. But nevertheless, we can we can understand why Jacob would have dug that well there he would have dug it to maintain the separateness of his household you see it wasn't that the water of that well was any better than probably any of the other waters around but Jacob had something far greater to preserve Jacob had been given exceeding great and precious promises been handed down to him from his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham Jacob had the precious word of God. He had the truth. He saw the need to endeavour to preserve in its purity and therefore he had to separate himself from the defiling influence of the Gentiles round about. You see, Jacob could see that in the word of truth he had the water of life. that was far too precious to be lost and to allow the influence of the Canaanites to defile it, and to destroy it. And you know, the very centre of that word of truth, the very centre of those promises that Abraham and and Isaac and Jacob received was the seed who had been promised. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. All the promises that were given them revolved around that seed. So you see, as they would have seen that word of truth as the water of life, and it he's spoken of in that way throughout the world. Isaiah chapter 12 speaks about in the future Israel will draw water out of the wells of salvation. And that will be of course receiving the word of truth from the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints who will then be the wells of salvation. And so you see that was what Jacob was trying to preserve. He was trying to preserve the purity of that water of life which was centred in the seed that was promised when he dug that well and he dug that well to maintain the separateness that he might maintain the truth in its purity in his household you see everything about that scene everything we look at about that scene the hills the wells, the trees the names of the places, the history it was all uniting to in acclamation of that one who at that time was labouring, tired and footsore up the road toward Jacob's well. What, must, what thoughts must have been in the Lord's mind as he drew close to that place and sat down beside Jacob's well? We read in verse 6 that as he sat there, he was, he sat there because he was wearied with his journey and he sat thus on the well he was wearied with his journey the word weary, the word kapaya it means to beat out to be tired or exhausted as with excessive toil I believe the Lord was quite exhausted from the day's journey possibly associated with preaching work on the way Possibly the Lord had been involved in not only physical exertion but mental strain as well. And when he came to this region he was quite weary and worn out and tired and exhausted. And so the disciples leave him there and they go off into the town that they might buy food. And in this exhausted state we see the Lord sitting upon the well, upon Jacob's well. Now, Brother Robert Roberts in Nazareth Revisited, page 111, makes some interesting comments upon this little scene that we have before us. We've quoted it there on the middle of the sheet that was given out. We've quoted an extract from the middle of page 111 of Nazareth Revisited. There Brother Roberts says, We find him on the road, wearied with his journey, This in passing tells us, interestingly, more things than one. It not only tells us of one touched with the feeling of our infirmities, Hebrews 4.15, but it shows us that the Spirit of God, though resting on him without measure, was not available for his personal needs during the days of his flesh. The Pharisees embittered his dying moments by shouting, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Their cruel taunt carried a certain truth with it concerning his whole career. He gave strength to the weak. He healed the disease. He raised the dead. But his own personal needs and sorrows he endured in the weakness of mortal flesh, supported by that faith in the Father which he possessed in a measure transcending that of all his disciples. You see, in there, Brother Robert's shows us the significance of this little statement. He was wearied with his journey. It shows him contending with all the weaknesses of human nature. And although he bore the spirit without measure, nevertheless, that spirit without measure didn't relieve him of the weaknesses of human nature. You see, it was absolutely necessary that if he is one to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, He has to share our weaknesses. If he is to be a covering for our sins, he has to be a partaker of our nature and of all the weaknesses and of all the problems that go with it. And although he had the Spirit without measure as a testimony, as God witnessing to the fact that he was the Son of God and giving testimony to the things that he was teaching, nevertheless, in his own weaknesses and in his own problems of mortal life, he, was, he, 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 he grappled with those weaknesses in the same way as any other man. And so we see him here, exhausted as he comes and draws near to Jacob's well. We're told at the end of that verse that it was about the sixth hour. Now, authorities seem to be divided on to what time of the day that would have been. You see, in Jewish hours that would have been Uh, either midnight or midday. The Jews, the hours of the night for the Jews started at 6 p.m. in the evening and finished at 6 a.m. in the morning. The hours of the day started at 6 a.m. in the morning and went through to 6 uh, p.m. in the evening. And so by Jewish times it would be midday. But there is uh, some basis for belief that John through his gospel is not using Jewish times as we have noted before. But he's Using Gentile times, this becomes apparent when we get through to the to the time of the trial and, and, and rejection of the Lord. And, if you, and, and the footnotes in the dialogue, following those things through, point out that it is more likely that John is using uh, Gentile the Gentile system of timing, which would make the sixth hour either 6 a.m. in the morning or 6 p.m. in the evening. And it points out that this was 6 p.m. in the evening would be a more normal time for the women to be going forth to the well to get water it would be a time when the Lord would obviously be wearied by a, a day's journeying uh, and and um, so on and so forth so if it's Jewish time it was midday, if it's Gentile time it was 6pm in the evening I don't think it really matters a lot uh, w- which it is, it doesn't make any difference to the spiritual teaching of this story what hour of the day it was. But the important thing is that the Lord Jesus Christ was there at Jacob's well. He was weary. He was exhausted with the strains and stresses of that day. So his disciples leave him there. They go off, as verse 8 tells us, into the city to buy meat. And the Lord is sitting there, tired and footsore and weary. And in verse 7 we read that there cometh a woman of Samaria, to draw water. So as he's sitting there, this woman comes along with her water pot on her shoulder, coming to get her day's supply of water. And she sees the Lord sitting there, and she immediately recognises him as a Jew. So probably uh, the Lord's physical features clearly marked him out as a Jew, possibly maybe his dress as well. But whatever it was, the, the, the woman of Samaria recognized him as a Jew. And she proceeds, no doubt, on getting to the well to, to, to uh, um, lower her water pot down the well and to draw up the water. And then to her utter amazement, the person that she had seen there sitting by the well says unto her, give me to drink. Again, you see, this shows us the the, um, way in which the Lord was a a partaker of human nature. He was thirsty. He was in need of water. You see, and we see that that, uh, not only was he in need of water, but we see the way in which the Lord used every opportunity that came along to try and seek people's salvation. He used every opportunity he could to preach the truth you see and and look at the way in which he he strikes up the conversation here you see the woman was there to get water she was probably bent over that well looking down she was looking at the water water was the thing that was on her mind and the thing that she was thinking about so immediately he picked upon water as an ideal opportunity to preach the truth to her you know as we see the Lord here and we see him in, in, in all the weakness of human nature. Tired, foot sore, thirsty by that well. You see, he was a partaker of all the weaknesses that we bear. You know, and, and as we, we, we put the, the scene together there, here he is at the very place which speaks of the burden bearer. Here he is where, where Jacob built an altar and called it the strength of the mighty ones of Israel. Here was the place where the oak tree, the symbol of strength was, that pointed forward to the teacher that was to come. And here he is, tired, weak, exhausted, in all the weakness of human nature. Do you know as we look at him there in all that weakness? Indeed he was the burden bearer. Indeed he was the strength of the mighty ones of Israel. Because despite his weakness in that particular situation we see that throughout his life in times of such weakness the Lord never once faltered in giving service to his father. He never once faltered in giving the love and the service that he owed to his his fellow men. And that's where his strength lies. His service to his father transcended everything else, transcended his own needs and his own feelings. And so we see him here in all the weakness of human nature, but using every opportunity to serve his father and to seek to save his fellow man. And it shows us here the way that that the Lord speaks to this woman of Samaria shows that he did not share the Jewish enmity towards the Samaritans but he was prepared to seek that woman's salvation and probably achieved it. And so we find he said unto her give me to drink. The woman was quite taken back by this on two scores. You see from verse 27 we read that when the disciples returned they were quite amazed to find the Lord speaking to a woman. You see, verse 27 says, And upon this came his disciples, and they marveled that he talked with the woman. You see, and not only was it not a normal thing for a man to speak to a woman under those circumstances, but it under but, but it was quite unusual for a Jew to have any dealings at all with a Samaritan. As verse 9 tells us. But the woman says unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And so on two scores it was most unusual for the Lord to make this request, to talk to a woman and to talk to a Samaritan. Now I believe that as the woman spoke that statement of verse 9, how is it that thou, being a Jew, ask this drink of me, which of a, a woman of Samaria? It would possibly be an element of reproach or contempt in her words. We can imagine her saying to the Lord perhaps, Oh yes, you Jews won't have any dealings with us until you're desperately in need of a drink. That's possibly the tenor in which she spoke to him. Probably a note of contempt in her words. You now she saw the Lord there obviously tired and exhausted and thirsty, she thought that all the barriers were broken down because of the need of that man. And the while normally he would, he would have walked by without, without looking at her or speaking to her. now because of his need, he would beg of her a drink of water. And possibly for a moment as she spoke to him there, she saw herself as the self-sufficient one able to supply his need and she saw him as absolutely dependent upon her. And as she said those words of verse 9 that was probably the thoughts that were in her mind. She was probably looking upon the Lord thinking how dependent he was upon her and how she was in the position to provide the thing that he needed. If only she knew in reality he had it completely back to front. And that's what he yet no man said, What seeest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? You see, it was not a normal thing for a man to speak to a woman under those circumstances. You see, and not only was it not a normal thing for a man to speak to a woman under those circumstances, yes. but it under but, but it was quite unusual for a Jew to have any dealing to talk with a Samaritan as verse 9 tells us. The woman says unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And so on two scores it was most unusual for the Lord to make this request. To talk to a woman and to talk to a Samaritan. Now I believe that as the woman that statement of verse 9 how is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me which of a woman of Samaria there'd possibly be an element of reproach or contempt in her words we can imagine her saying to the Lord perhaps oh yes you Jews won't have any dealings with us until you're desperately in need of a drink that's possibly the tenor in which she spoke to him Probably a note of contempt in her words, because now she saw the Lord there obviously tired and exhausted and thirsty, she thought that all the barriers were broken down because of the need of that man, and the while normally he would, he would have walked by without, without looking at her or speaking to her, now, because of his need, he would beg of her a drink of water, and possibly for a moment as she spoke to him there she saw herself as the self-sufficient one able to supply his need and she saw him as absolutely dependent upon her and as she said those words of verse 9 that was probably the thoughts that were in her mind and she was probably looking upon the Lord thinking how dependent he was upon her and how she was in the position to provide the thing that he needed if only she knew in reality she had it completely back to front and that's what the Lord was going to show her the Lord was going to show her that really it was completely reversed he had no need of he he didn't have any need of her it was her that needed him you see in verse 10 the Lord says and Jesus answered and said unto her if thou knewest the gift of God if thou knewest the gift of God the word gift there the word doria it means a gift or a present we find the word used in Romans chapter 5 Romans chapter 5 and verse 15 the second occurrence of the word gift here is the word in question Romans 5 and verse 15 says but not as the offence, so also is the free gift. For if through the offence of one many be dead, much more the grace of God, and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. And not as if it were by one that sins, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offences unto justification. You see, there's the gift of God. The gift of God is a means of is, is means of providing forgiveness of sins. So that people might have their sins blotted out. That so they might be brought into a, a, a right and acceptable relationship with the Father. And that they might be prepared uh, and made ready and fitted to receive eternal life at the future time. That the gift of God and in the 2nd of Corinthians I think it's chapter 9 2nd of Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 15 the apostle Paul says thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift and what an unspeakable gift it is, brethren and sisters, that people, sinners, weak, mortal sinners, can receive as a free, undeserved gift from Almighty God, the, the forgiveness of sins and the opportunity for eternal life in the age to come. You see, we see that woman in John chapter 4, that Samaritan woman, burdened down with the daily drudgery of life, Daisy going out to that well to carry water back for for herself and and, and, and those living with her. We see her reaping the effects of an immoral life. She did live an immoral life, it comes out later. But she didn't know. She didn't know that there at that well was the very very offer of a priceless gift of the blotting out of her past bringing her into a right and acceptable relationship with God and of preparing her for eternal life. She didn't know the gift of God and that's why she was looking with contempt upon that Jew that was sitting before her. But what of us, brethren and sisters? What of young people growing up in the truth today? Do they know the gift of God? Do they realise what it is that Yahweh is holding out to them? in the truth? Could this be the reason for so much complacency in the ecclesial world today that brethren and sisters don't know the gift of God? Don't know what the Father's giving them and offering them and inviting them to? You see, that woman didn't know it or understand it at that time. But before we leave that woman in John chapter 4, she's a very changed woman, a very changed woman indeed, because a new, a new vigour and a new vitality had entered her life. But at that time, you see, she didn't know the gift of God. And, he, and the Lord adds in verse 10, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that says to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him. You see, she didn't know the gift of God. She didn't understand what it was that God was trying to offer her. Neither did she know who it was that was sitting there. And who was it? The promised seed. The well of the waters of salvation. The burden bearer who could could lift her burden from off her shoulders. There was the strong one before whom she could unburden her sin and her idolatry and have it hidden from view. But she didn't know it. She didn't understand. She didn't know the gift of God. Neither did she know the one who was sitting before her. So the Lord said, If you had known these things, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. He would have given thee living water. You see, the first place in the Bible, I believe, where living water is mentioned is back in the book of Genesis, chapter 26 and verse 19. I think it is referring to a well that Isaac Read Chapter 26 of Genesis and verse 19 And Isaac's servants digged in the valley, and they found there a well of springing water. Now you notice the margin gives an alternate rendering of springing. It gives it of living water. You see, and this was, a well, this was a, a well which they dug, and they found running water. They dug up a spring or an underground stream, and there was there was living, running, springing water. And that's the significance of living water in the in the literal sense. It was it was running, or springing up, it was alive, living as it were. It was living water. Now we find that we trace through the scriptures, we find that that these fountains of living water are spoken of frequently and were used in certain ways under the law. For instance we could go to Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13 and we find there that Yahweh is spoken of as a fountain of living water. Chapter 2 and verse 13 For my people have committed two evils they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hews them out systems broken systems that can hold no water Jeremiah 17 verse 13 speaks of the same way of Yahweh as a fountain of living waters and when we read that word living waters it's the same as translated springing back in Genesis and it's the same word as is translated running in, uh, in other quotations that we'll look at shortly It's the same word right through living or running waters. Of course Yahweh, the waters that that Yahweh is a a fountain of living waters aren't literal waters at all. But The living waters that, that spring forth from Yahweh are his word of truth. We learn that from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 27 for example. The fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. But how do we get the fear of Yahweh? The very first chapter of the book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of Yahweh is the first fruit of wisdom. It is wisdom, it is knowledge and wisdom that gives the fear of Yahweh and that's a, that is a fountain of life. It's like a fountain, like water's pouring and bubbling up over, out of a fountain and, and to depart from the snares of death. Likewise, just there over the page in chapter 16 and verse 22, we, we read, understanding is a wellspring of life. Unto him that hath it, But the instruction of Paul is folly. Where does understanding come from? It comes from the word of truth. It's the word of truth that can give a person understanding and that is like a wellspring of life, like a fountain of life. Unto him that happens. And so, you see, Yahweh is a fountain of living water. He gives us his word and that word becomes unto us a fountain or a wellspring of life. Now under the law, running water was used in interesting ways. It was used in the cleansing of a leper. Leviticus 14 and verse 5 and the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in an earthen vessel over running water the word running there same word as living k the word living water and so you see now for the cleansing of a leper he was to take uh, two birds alive the word k the same word that's rendered running in verse 5 two birds alive and clean cedar so what scarlet and bit And there was to be the sacrifice of one of those birds in an earthen vessel over running water. And it was a combination of those things that brought about the cleansing of a leper. You see, we know that those things have a spiritual significance of of our cleansing from sin. There's the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it has to be that running water also, that living water of the truth that can cleanse and transform a person. You see, we go over the page in chapter 15 of, Levit- of Leviticus. We read of the cleansing of a person that's had a, had a running issue from their flesh that's rendered them unclean as far as the law is concerned. But verse 13 of, of, of that chapter, it says, And when he that hath an issue is cleansed of his issues, and he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing, and shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in running or living water, and he shall be clean." So again the living water was used in the in the cleansing from the defilement of a running issue. In Numbers chapter nineteen, we read of the of the red heifer. Uh, When a person had been defiled by contact with a dead body, by contact with death, they had to be cleansed. They were unclean under the law, and they had to be cleansed. In verse seventeen of that chapter we read. Um, and for an unclean person, they shall take of the ashes of the burnt heifer, a purification for sin, and running or living water, and shall be put there into, into a vessel. So you see, there was living water used in the cleansing from the defilement of death. And all of these things have their spiritual significance in us being cleansed from sin. Being cleansed from those things that issue forth from the flesh and render us unclean. From the very death-stricken nature that we bear that makes us unfit for, 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 for the kingdom of God. We have to be cleansed from the defilement of those things. And in each of those cases, running or living water was an essential element in the cleansing process. There was sacrifice and there was living water that, that, that brought about that cleansing. And so, you see, these are the ways in which the uh, uh, running water is used in the scripture. We go to the Song of Solomon and we find that the bride herself, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, is described by the Lord, by the bridegroom, the Lord himself, as a fountain of living waters. Verse 15, of Song of Solomon chapter 4, we've got the the, the words of of the bridegroom speaking, of his bride. He says, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. And you see, she's a fountain of gardens, a stream of living waters, because she's had the word of truth within her, springing up within her, cleansing her, purging out all the uncleanness and defilement of the flesh and cleansing her and preparing her as a bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in the Epistle to the Ephesians, she's washed with the with the with the uh, water or the labor of the word. She's washed and prepared as a bride for her husband. And in the future age, of course, in such places as Zechariah 14 and verse 8, we read how a fountain will be opened for the house of Israel for sin and for uncleanness. And there, of course, that that fountain will be the, in the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints who will give them the Pure word of truth that can cleanse their lives and and, um, and and fit them for service to Almighty God, and so on. We could go into the Book of Revelation, into the Epistle of James, where we see in the Epistle of James the words that pour out of our mouth are spoken of like a fountain. But James says you just can't have salt water and and clear water coming out of the the the, the same spring. And he says blessing and cursing should not proceed out of the same mouth you see and so we we see that these are the things that would have been in the Lord's mind when he said if you had known the gift of God if you had known who it was that was sitting before you you would have asked of him to give you a drink and he would have given you living water living water water that's living water that can give new life, water that could cleanse her, make her a constituent of the bride of the Lord, Lord, and fit her for the kingdom of God. But the woman didn't understand all those things. When he said he would have given thee living water, she she got the message that he was speaking of running water. Because you see in verse 11 she says, the woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then pass thou that living water? In verse eleven there, she uses a different word for well that has been used in the previous and in subsequent verses of this chapter. Verses eleven and twelve have a different word. You see, in the, when we read of Jacob's well was there, it's a well. It's a word which means a spring, a spring or a fountain but in verses 11 and 12 where the woman said unto him thou hast nothing to draw in and the well it means a pit or a system something that would just hold stagnant water not running water so you see the Lord recognized the difference that the Lord wasn't talking about that water in that well because that wasn't running water she says, look where are you going to get this running water from the well's deep, you've got nothing to draw with, and it's only a, a system or a pit anyway. Where then are you going to get this living or running water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Aren't thou greater than our father Jacob? You see, the woman hadn't really perceived why Jacob had done that well. She in her mind thought that Jacob had given them that well because that well was going to provide better water than he could get anywhere else. But that wasn't the reason at all. You see, Jacob had dug that well that he might preserve the separateness of his family. That he might that his family's attention might always be directed to that seed. That seed who was the well of salvation who was the the, the wellspring of that water of truth that he coveted so much. That was why Jacob dug that well. But you see, she never perceived that. And she couldn't perceive that the one sitting by that well was the very one that Jacob had seen. The very one that was the wellspring of the water of life as far as Jacob was concerned. And so she said, Are you greater than our father Jacob which gave us this well? She hadn't understood that Jacob hadn't really, that Jacob's mind wasn't looking at that west, but was looking at the one who was at that time sitting beside that west. So you see, in um, verses 13 and 14, the Lord patiently instructs her. You know what a lesson there is in the example of the Lord here. There he was, tired and weary and exhausted. He presented to the woman some glorious spiritual principles. She just hadn't understood. Dense as a, like talking to a brick wall. You see, if, if, if that was me, I'd start to get very impatient now. I'd think, well, what's the use of going on anymore? The stupid woman can't see the difference between, between the water in that well and the, and the truth that we're talking about. What's the use of saying anymore? But you know, the Lord exercised tremendous patience here, as he's tired and he's weary, but he reasons his, with this woman, and gradually and gently, but in a masterly way, he just leads her on to the point where he's going, she's going to be able to receive that water of life. You see, verses thirteen and fourteen. The Lord said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again you know it's so typical isn't it of everything related to the natural man everything related to this natural man it only lasts for a little while and then it's gone you know she labours away to get a pot of water up out of that well the next day she's got to go and get another one up because it's gone and the needs are still there she could never really satisfy the need by drawing water out of that well and that's the point that the Lord is making there Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. And you know, it shows us the utter futility of labouring for the temporal things of this life, of making them the first object of our life. What futility, what vanity! Because you're only going to thirst again anyway. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. You see, there's the contrast with these things of the Spirit that he was to give. He says, Whoso drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, But that water will become in him a a well, not just a system, a spring of water springing up into or towards everlasting life. You see, he he uses the word there for a spring or a fountain. And he says that that water will be springing up. And that word springing is a word that only appears three times in the New Testament. The word alomei. And it means to jump, to leap, to spring. It's used twice in the book of Acts. But just look at one of those instances in Acts chapter 3 and verse 8. Acts chapter 3 and verse 8 where Peter and John had healed the lame man And and we read in verse 8 that he leaping up stood and walked and entered with them into the temple walking and leaping and praising God and the other place in Acts chapter 14 and verse 10 is very similar and here's the man walking and leaping and praising God because the first time in his life he's been able to walk and we can imagine the joy and the rejoicing in that man as he was able to stand on his feet and leap for joy and praise God. And that's the word that the Lord here uses. Of this fountain that can leap, that can jump up within a person. And it's an indication, I believe, of the of the, of the, of the, of the, the the joy and the vigour that the truth could, could create in that woman. There was that woman eaten out, whether you've consequences of an immoral life but the water that the Lord could give her could bring that joy and vigour and vitality into her that she never thought was possible and more than that it was all directed towards eternal life and it would give her eternal life in the kingdom age she could be a part of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ if only she would receive the water that he would give her and she would never thirst. Of course, she, she she would have a constant thirsting for more and more of that water all the time. But the water that she, she, she would receive and drink of would remain with her. It would remain there. That wouldn't evaporate away as long as she kept all in that way, as long as she kept on thirsting. You see, the things we do for the things of the Spirit don't just vanish away. You know you can go out like that woman and labour all day pulling up buckets of water but you know a few days time you're going to have to draw up another lot because all that you've got is gone and lost. But you spend all day studying the word of truth and you've got something that will go with you for the rest of your life. You've got something that will be in you, shaping you, preparing you for the kingdom of God and future glory. Something that satisfies you something that, that, that can can give purpose into your life, purpose and joy and vigour into your life. If only we would, can drink of that water that the Lord Jesus Christ can give. It can become in us a fountain, something that's always there, something that's always springing up, giving joy, purpose, enthusiasm and vigour into our life. You see, and that was what the Lord was offering that woman there. You know, still the woman didn't really understand. Verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. See, she was still really associating all that he said to literal water that she could drink. She hadn't really understood. But you see, and yet the Lord had created in her a desire. She now had a desire for that water. that desire had been kindled in her. and she's, she's come to the point now where he says, "Give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to drink. She's asked for the water." And what a peculiar answer the Lord gives. Verse 16 he says unto her, "Go and call your husband and come hither." Is the Lord trying to change the subject? Has this conversation come to a climax where the woman's asked for the water but the Lord can't really give it so he's got to change the subject and, and get on to something else? Of course not. Of course not. There was something that that woman needed before she could drink of that water. And Christ, in a few simple words, brought her to see that. He says, go and call thy husband. And with those few simple words, that woman was brought face to face with herself. The answer shows in verse 17, she says, I've got no husband. The Lord says, you're right, you said truly. You've had five husbands and the man you're now living with isn't your husband anyway. And that woman was brought face to face with herself. Perhaps now she could understand the gift of God. Perhaps now she saw herself as a moral letter. Perhaps she could see herself defiled by the things that had issued forth out of her own flesh. Perhaps now she could see herself as one defiled by mortality and death. Now she could appreciate the gift of God. Now she could understand what the Lord meant by that living water could cleanse her, that water that could cleanse her, could change her, could prepare her to be a member of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ in the future age. As we trace on that woman through this chapter as we will do next class, God willing we see how a newness of life did enter into that woman and how that that water that the Lord had given her did begin to spring up in in her as a fountain of living water You know, if you look at a fountain, if you look at a spring where the water's bubbling up out of the ground, you know, there's a cleansing action in that welling up of that water. The ground around the source of that spring is quite often pure, clean sand. Because all the dirt and all the rubbish has been cleansed and washed away. You know, the truth can enter into us. The truth, if received with enthusiasm and joy, can be in us, springing up within us, having that cleansing action, cleansing us, washing away the filth of the flesh, preparing us for a place in the kingdom of God. And there we will have to leave this very interesting chapter for the time being, but we will develop these things a little further in two weeks' time if the Lord wins.